We were meditating last Bible study on Psalm 33 and verse 3, where David says, play skillfully unto the Lord. And I sure am glad that we have musicians here at the Baptist Christian Church that desire to play skillfully unto the Lord. Also very unusual to have a young guy like that lead singing. Ryan does such a good job. And uh, make sure that you encourage him from time to time. Uh, I don't know where he's disappeared. There he is. And uh, good job, young man. All right. Keep up the good work. Psalm number 34 in the Word of God this morning. Psalm number 34. And uh, as you've got Psalm 34 on the mind, go ahead and just flip back to 1 Samuel chapter number 21. I'm going to show you why we're going to do that. There are no less than 14 psalms that have an inscription in the introduction that link the psalm to a specific moment in the life of King David. And Psalm 34 is one of those 14 psalms. Let's look at the inscription. As you uh, have one finger stuck over there, get your ribbons out. Boy, good, good Bible with good ribbons. My son Gideon asked for a leather Bible for his birthday. He had a birthday last week. And uh, one of the uh, uh, caveats was that it had to have ribbons. And apparently he sees all my Bibles stacked up. You know, I collect Bibles. <laughs> and uh, so I have my Bibles stacked up and they have the ribbons sticking out. And so he wanted to have a Bible that had ribbons. And uh, hopefully now we ordered it and, you know, to have they had his name put on it. Did you know that? All right, now he does. And so uh, we went down to the uh, post office box and had a little yellow card in there. But uh, So it's going to be here probably tomorrow sometime in the morning. But he wanted a Bible that had ribbons on it because he's always hearing Daddy talk about how helpful the ribbons are. So get your ribbons going. We got Psalm 34 and verse 1. And then we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel again, chapter number 21. So I want to read the inscription for you, and then we're going to jump back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. In the introduction, it says, Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, this is a very unusual uh, situation that took place in the life of David. So let's go back. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very incident that this psalm references. So this is a specific uh, time and a specific situation that took place in David's life in Psalm 21. We're going to be referencing Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 21. We're going to be referencing 1 Samuel 21 several times in our study this morning. So notice with me 1 Samuel chapter 21, 10 through 15. I'll read them quickly if you can listen quickly. Verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before him and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have then you brought him to me? Do I lack 
a madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so you see, can you imagine this? Can you imagine what it would have been like for David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man of war, the future king of Israel, to be acting like a crazed madman in the presence of King Achish? I want to talk about this. I want to talk about how this particular passage in 1 Samuel 21 plays a pivotal role in our interpretation of what we read in the 34th Psalm. Because after all, the psalmist connects what the 34th Psalm says with what David did in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. So let's talk about that a little bit. What we know from the text is that David is fleeing from the presence of King Saul. You remember Jonathan comes and informs David that his father, you remember Jonathan was David's best friend, and uh, Jonathan comes and informs David that his father, King Saul, is going to kill David. And so what David does is he flees. And ultimately, David seeks to find refuge in the land of the Philistines. Now, can you imagine this low ebb in the life of David? David had a lot of low ebbs. That's why I like David so much. As I can relate to what it's like to have a lot of low ebbs in my life. You know what a low ebb is? A low ebb is a valley. A low ebb is a low point. A low ebb means that uh, things you're down on your luck, as we would say in our modern times. And so David finds himself at a very low ebb in his life. He's running from King Saul and he runs into the land of the Philistines. Now, what is the significance? that Achish is the king of Gath. Well, Gath was actually the land where Goliath was from. And if you have ever studied your Bible and been in church for any lengthy period of time at all, you'll know that Goliath was one of Israel's great enemies. And he was a giant of a man. And you remember little old snot-nosed David came with his five smooth stones and it didn't say that David used all five of them, but he only had to use one. And uh, David slew the giant and uh, so then therefore what we have is David running from King Saul into the land of his great enemy and whatever happened there was apparently enough to make David scared out of, of his bejeebies and uh, David was uh, very nervous and anxious and frightened. And so what we have here is a very low point in the life of the man David. Now you remember, the only thing that David had, 1 Samuel 21 tells us, he didn't have any money, he didn't have any food, he had the clothes on his back, and he didn't even have a weapon to defend himself. And what he does is he goes to Ahimelech, the priest of Nob, and Ahimelech just so happens to have the sword of Goliath there as a sort of memorial for what God did for Israel. And so what Ahimelech does is he gives David Goliath's sword. Now let's paint this picture. Here you have David the slayer of Goliath. I don't have time to go into what all that means. I wish I did, but I don't. And so you have David, the slayer of Goliath, the king of Israel, fleeing Saul, going into the land of the Philistines, and the only thing that he has with him is the sword of Goliath. 
Now, what do you think would have been the reaction of the Philistines when they saw David with no one and nothing except for one sword, and it's the sword of their great champion? Would that what have made the Philistines angry? Oh, I bet it made their blood boil. And so that's what you have happening. Now, what David does is he changes his behavior and he acts insane like a crazed madman. And the Bible said he's scratching meaningless marks on the gate of the city and he's letting his spit run down his beard and he's acting like he's completely lost his mind. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall seeing this go on. This would have been a very interesting sight to see the sweet psalmist of Israel, the great, 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 great grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ behaving in this way. But here, nevertheless, we have this situation before us. And so what I want to do is show you that what we have is the 34th Psalm was written to commemorate David's experience before King Achish of Gath in the land of the Philistines. After David flees the presence of King Achish, he goes and the Bible says in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22 verse 1, he says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So here you have David escaping to a great cave somewhere. This is a common uh, theme and feature of David's life in these years where he finds his life being constantly threatened by the evil king Saul. I'm going to suggest that the key verse to understanding, or at least the key verse in our study this morning, of Psalm 34 is found in Psalm 34 and verse number 6. Notice what the Bible said. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. I believe that this is a key verse in the 34th Psalm. I'll repeat it again. Psalm 34 verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This is David probably writing the 34th Psalm while he was in the cave of Adullam after just fleeing the presence of his great enemies, the Philistines, and having King Saul hot on his trail, and uh, all he has is the sword of Goliath. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't have any clothes. All he's got the clothes on his back. doesn't have any money. doesn't really have any followers. And David views himself as a poor man. The title of the message this morning is A Poor Man's Song. A Poor Man's Song. David says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? This highlights one of the secrets to this incredible man's incredible life, David. This incredible man had an incredible life because David actually is exemplifying something called poverty of spirit. The Lord Jesus spoke of this poverty of spirit. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the Lord Christ says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When David came to Ahimelech, priest of Nod, he was completely destitute and poor. The text tells us that. He had nothing. David's outward condition of being poor, being destitute, being a pauper was merely a representation of how David's heart felt before the Lord. This poverty of spirit is one of the great beatitudes 
that the Lord Jesus speaks of in his Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about this. This is the, one of the great themes of the 34th Psalm. This 34th Psalm is for poor people, poor men and poor women and poor children. If you have ever felt destitute and spiritually bankrupt with nowhere to turn but to God himself, then this great psalm is written for you. Psalm 34 shows us some of the blessings associated with viewing ourselves as poor men and poor women before the Lord. I have at least three great blessings associated with poverty of spirit. Number one, they're phrased this way, a poor man's praise. Number one, a poor man's praise. Number two, a poor man's food. <laughs> Number three, a poor man's fear. That's a poor man's praise. A poor man's food. And a poor man's fear. I want to show you something. Notice the third verse. 34 and verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. My soul, verse 2, he said, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. What does it mean when David said in verse number 2 of Psalm 34, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. What does that mean? Because I thought we're not supposed to boast. I thought we're not supposed to talk about ourselves and how great we are. Well, the key to understanding what this boasting is, is to first understand what this boasting is not. So two points underneath this one. What, the boasting, of the, what boasting in the Lord is not. Secondly, underneath that, what boasting in the Lord is. Let's talk about first what boasting in the Lord is not. When I read this, I'm reminded of the words of a man who recalled his experience in boot camp. Listen to this. Quote, in basic training, our first sergeant made things very clear. He told us, don't question anything I say or tell you to do. Don't worry, I hardly ever make mistakes. <laughs> Matter of fact, I've made only one mistake in my life. I once thought I was wrong about something. It turned out I wasn't. This is what the Marine Corps first sergeant said at boot camp. Now think about this. That's boasting, isn't it? I mean, I was wrong about one thing in my whole life, and that was that I was wrong. I've got it right, and I've never looked back since. Think about this. But that's not what David has in mind in Psalm 34 and verse number 2. Because he said he boasted in the Lord. What the boasting in the Lord is, it means to acknowledge triumphing with God's help and attribute the victory to God alone. I'll repeat that. To acknowledge triumphing with God's help and to attribute one's victory to God alone. To say it this way, to boast in the Lord literally means, and what David is actually saying is it's a non-boast. See, it's this sort of reverse thing that takes place as we're saying all throughout the Psalms. David says, I'm boasting in the Lord, but really what David is saying is I'm not boasting in myself. Why, David? Because David is saying, I could not save myself. 
I could not save myself, but God did. Look at what he says in Psalm 34 and verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And he said, and let us exalt in his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look at how wonderful God is. David's not boasting in himself. David's boasting in the Lord. David's saying the opposite of what the Marine Corps sergeant said. David said, I've made a lot of mistakes and I may be in this situation I'm in right now because of something I've done, but although really he wasn't, but that's the way it is when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And that's where David was. He finds himself in a very low ebb and a low situation. I want to ask this question. Have you ever realized that you could not save yourself? That's what total depravity means. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. Total depravity means you're so bad that you cannot save your own self. It's necessary for Bible salvation, for redemption, for regeneration, for the new birth in Christ, that you come to the place that you realize you cannot save your own self. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how ingenuitive in your human mind and your humanity you may be, you realize that you can't do it, that your uh, card has been pulled, and if God doesn't do something, that you are completely without hope and help in the world. David comes to the place to where he says, I could not save myself, but God did. That's what boasting in the Lord is. He boasted in the Lord. I could not save myself, but God did. My question for you is, do we really boast in the Lord? David was literally between a rock, that's King Saul, and a hard place, King Achish. No matter where he turned, he had enemies on all sides. But what David does is he goes to the cave of Adullam and he writes this great testimony in Psalm 34 of God's saving deliverance in his life. According to this psalm, we are to teach others to know God by telling our testimony. Our testimony is our story of what God has done for and in us. One of the most powerful tools that you have in preaching the gospel and sharing Christ with a sin-sick, fallen world is what God has done in and for you. And that's what David does in this great psalm. David says, I could not save myself, but then he turns right around and he says, God saved me. When we tell our story about God and what God has done for and in us, do we tell it in such a way that we seek to convince people that God is real, was walking with us, walking beside us, in and through all of our trials of faith? Do we preach when we speak of God in a way where we convince people that God is not some suffering Savior hanging on some cross somewhere, but that God is alive, that He's a living Lord, that He walks with us, beside us, and He is sustaining us in and through all of our trials and troubles. Do you seek to convince people like David that the Lord is near? Look at verse 18. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Boy, isn't that a very powerful verse? 
Have you ever been brokenhearted? Have you ever been crushed in your spirit? Well, the Lord is near to those. See, that's what the way the Lord Jesus Christ begins his beatitudes. He said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I want to draw your attention to something slightly peculiar about this great psalm. Verses 1, 5, 8, 10, and 13. Let's look at them. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Look at verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Notice in these two verses, he mentions mouth, he mentions face, and he mentions looking with the eyes. Also, verse number 8, David said, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Look at verse number 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Look at verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. In all these verses, what did you notice? That there is an emphasis on physiology. There's an emphasis on human anatomy. See, he mentions the eyes, he mentions the taste, he mentions the mouth, he mentions hunger and the belly, he mentions all these physical things. What does this mean? Why would David go through such trouble to discuss human body parts in Psalm 34? So you see where David talks about our body parts, our anatomy, but notice in verses 15, 16, and 17 of Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. It's not just human body parts, but who else has body parts in Psalm number 34? God does. And what does this mean? You have the body, the human anatomy and the divine anatomy, and they're really almost like being talked about as they're one and the same. David thanks God that God was just as real as his unfortunate circumstances. David mentions his physical body, but then when David speaks of the physical or the spiritual God, he also talks about God in physical language. Here you have both human and divine anatomies being contrasted with one another in the same voice. This means two things. I want to show you this. This is important, and this is one of the keys to interpreting this great psalm. When we are suffering the most in this physical world in which we live, God is ever-present and suffering with us physically. Well, that speaks of another person I know. What was his name? Oh, Jesus. Jesus comes to the earth, he takes on human form, and he suffers everything that a human being could suffer. I mean, he's rejected, he's despised, he's hungry, he's tired. He's even sick at times. And he suffers everything that a human being can suffer. God himself comes and takes on human anatomy, and that's what David is suggesting in this 34th Psalm. 
Don't ever forget that the spiritual God that you worship and serve is just as real in this physical world in which you live as the flesh on your bones. Just like you have eyes, God has eyes. Just like you have ears, God has ears. Just like your heart is broken, God's heart is broken. All the pain, all the suffering, all the rejection, all the dejection, all of that is right there. God experiences it with you and in you. Isn't that encouraging to know? And we're not just preaching some God that sits off in some aseptic dimension somewhere. He's not real interested in getting his hands dirty uh, in the, in the uh, creative act and in what human beings are doing here on planet Earth. That's not who God is at all. God is with us ever-present physically. Just like we are. As much as we suffer physically, God suffers with and in us. This is the great truth of the gospel. See, look, Christ cannot redeem that which he has not assumed. Christ cannot redeem that which he has not assumed. What does that mean? That means in order for Jesus to save us fully, he must have fully become us. Did you know you could never say to Jesus Christ, you don't know what I'm going through? God knows what you're going through. You know why? Because God came and experienced everything that you will ever experience in your life. For further details, study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's very clear. And this is the way that Jesus can provide full and complete salvation to us. Because he redeems us in as far as he assumes us. Does Jesus assume our mind? Yes. Does Jesus assume our body? Yes. Does Christ assume us spiritually? Yes. So the salvation that Christ brings is both full and complete. Secondly, the anatomy of a personal God. Listen to this. As embodied creatures living in the physical world, we are what we do. Just as our physical eyes, ears, mouth, face, stomach, breath can be controlled and trained to do certain things, that's the way that our spiritual lives should be as well. Just like a long-distance runner trains their breathing, if you don't know how to breathe as a long-distance runner, you won't be running long-distance for long. Matter of fact, there's two dangers with long-distance running. You can either not breathe enough and get asphyxiated, right, Ryan? Or you can breathe too much and poison yourself with oxygen. Did you know that? It's possible that if you don't know how to breathe properly, that you won't be able to perform your physical task. And that's what this is suggesting with all the mention of the body parts. We need to be trained we need to train our spiritual body just like someone trains their physical body. If you're going to seek the Lord, seek him with the eyes and with the heart. If you're going to hear from the Lord, hear from the Lord with the spiritual ears of your understanding. It's very important that we train ourselves in the service of the Lord. Bible study, prayer, sometimes fasting, uh, very often scripture memorization, intense personal Bible study, crying out to God, praying without ceasing, Paul said. 
moving forward in the Christian life. Roman number number two, a poor man's food. A poor man's food. Notice Psalm 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. In, Psalm, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech said, and came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David and said, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Verse 5, And David answered the priest, uh, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence. What is this bread of the presence? This is a very curious thing. Here you have David going into a tabernacle, the priest of Nod. He doesn't have any money, doesn't have any food, doesn't even have a weapon. And he says, Mr. Priest, Mr. Ahimelech, can I please have some food? And the priest says, I don't have any food except for the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was left over from the Hebrew New Moon Festival. Under normal circumstances, only the Levites could partake of this bread. See Leviticus 24 and verse 9. Ultimately, Ahimelech ruled that David and his men could eat the bread if they were ritually pure. These verses suggest several things. Let me talk about the bread of the presence. This was holy bread. This was consecrated bread. This was bread that was made as an offering to the Lord. And it was holy, not because it was holy in and of itself, but because the bread was in the presence of God. See, whatever enters the presence of God is holy. It must be. In order for us to enter into the presence of God, we must be holy. David had no right to partake of the bread of the presence unless under extreme circumstances, the Pentateuch tells us. And David was, in fact, in desperate and extreme circumstances. And so what David does, he takes the five loaves of the bread of the presence, and that's all that he has, but he eats it. And to commemorate this experience of eating the bread of the presence, bread that was consecrated, sanctified in the holy presence of our God. And what happens is David said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes reference, excuse me, refuge in him. There's two things. This taste and see that the Lord is good is an invitation. David experienced directly, personally, God's delivering power. So he invites others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Here it is. It's not good enough for you to hear somebody else talking about how sweet honey is. You can hear somebody talking about how sweet honey is till the cows come home and it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. You don't know the sweetness and the viscosity and the unique flavor of honey. I've had honey knockoffs, and they never taste like real honey. 
There's something about real bona fide honey that is unique. But if you've never personally tasted the sweetness of honey, you'll never know how wonderful honey actually is. And that's what David is saying about the relationship that he had, the experience that he had with God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a powerful invitation to experience the delivering power and grace of God for your own self. It doesn't matter. Oh, it's a blessing to see God at work in the life of someone else. But what the question is, are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Have you experienced God's mighty delivering power personally, intimately? And can you speak of it that way? If I was to ask you, tell me a little bit about Jesus. Could you tell me all the facts about who Jesus is? Maybe you would know some scripture. But what I'm really asking you is tell me a little bit about who Jesus is to you. And if you don't know him, taste and see that the Lord is good. But it's also a reference, I believe, to personal communion with God. Personal communion with God. I'm going to quote Mr. Spurgeon at length. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, The Lord's Supper represents the giving of the whole body of Christ to us. To enter in for food. Surely, Spurgeon said, if we enter into its true meaning, we may expect to be revived and vitalized. For we have here more than a mere touch of the hand. It is the whole Christ that enters into us spiritually and so comes into contact with our innermost being. Did you hear what he's saying? There are things going on when we take communion that are cosmic. There are things happening at this Lord's Supper table that are supernatural and miraculous. It's not just a time where we confess our sins. Jesus said, whosoever eats of the bread of life shall never hunger again. If you want eternal life, Jesus said, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. And the communion table speaks now of the union with Christ. Every time we partake of the wine, the grape juice, and the bread, we are being reminded that Jesus Christ is as real to us as is our physical hunger. That Christ has become an intrinsic part of our beings. This is called the real spiritual presence. Christ is symbolically present with us in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. The grace of God is bestowed on our hearts and minds when we partake of the Lord's Supper table. And that's what this verse is talking about. Way back yonder in the cave of Adullam, way back yonder, the priest of Nob gave old David five loaves of the bread of the presence, and it's the bread of the presence of Christ. I want to show you this verse. The angel of the Lord, look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Who is this angel of the Lord? It's the captain of the Lord's host. This is Christ himself. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The real spiritual presence of God was very real with David. How was David able to be sustained in all of the crazy things that he went through? The presence of Christ. What will sustain us 
in the dark caves of Adullam with King Saul, our great enemy, to our back and King Achish, our great enemy, to our face. The real presence of the Lord. It's wonderful. It's poor man's food. But see, very often, if you're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you cannot be filled with what? Him. Himself. He is a person, and His name is Christ. Roman numeral number three. A poor man's fear. A poor man's fear of the Lord. Look at verse 7, 9, and 11. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? At least four things. It's not what you would think. You have to be careful with looking words up in dictionaries or concordances or lexicons if you want to be fancy. Uh, because words mean different things at different times. All right? And so in this great passage, you have the fear of the Lord being mentioned no less than three times. The fear of the Lord is revealed in the promise of prayer. The promise of prayer. What is the promise of prayer? The promise of prayer does not mean God will change every difficult thing in your life. But the promise of prayer is that God will preserve you for as long as He has a work for you to do. That's why it's so important for us to be working for the Lord. You want to live a long life? You want to be an effective uh, human being and you want to be an effective servant of the Lord? Then serve Him because you will be invincible until God is done with you. That's what Mr. George Whitfield used to say. As long as you're in the center of God's will, nothing can touch you. This is the promise of prayer. It's that God will preserve you so long as He has work for you to do. If Joel W. Sharp Jr. dropped dead tomorrow, God forbid you would know that whatever God sent me to do, I'd done that and my time and my mission was over. The same is true for every servant of the Lord. This is the promise of prayer and this is one of the things that it means to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, to fear the Lord means to have faith that He is greater than your circumstances. That's what David did. David praised God in the cave of Adullam. It was a dark and dank and desolate and very uh, depraved kind of place, desolate place, and yet he writes a praise song. Secondly, it's deliverance from or in our troubles. Deliverance and salvation are twofold. Sometimes God will save you from your troubles. Other times God will save you in your troubles. Which do you see happening in Psalm 34 and 1 Samuel 21? Well, you have a little bit of both. God saved David from being killed by King Achish when he was, had all of his guard down. All he had was the sword of his enemy. David acted like an insane madman, and God delivered David from that situation. But God also delivered David in it, too, didn't he? Because he moved upon King Achish's heart, and David was able to escape. God never said that we wouldn't have fears, enemies, and troubles. But God did promise deliverance from 
them or in those troubles by his mighty power. To fear the Lord means to know God will deliver us from or in our turmoil. Thirdly, look at these verses. Psalm 34, 10 through, or 12 through 16. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them, that, uh, of them from the earth. Look, simply enough, to fear the Lord in Psalm 34 is to obey the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the proverb says. So if you want knowledge of who God is and you want to know what he's like, you've got to obey him. You've got to live a life that is in accordance with the profession that you've made. And finally, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of all spiritual life. I want to quote Dr. Craigie at length. Quote, the fear of the Lord is indeed the foundation of life, the key to joy in life and long and happy days. But it is not a guarantee that life will always be easy, devoid of the difficulties that may seem to mar so much of human existence. The fear of the Lord establishes joy and fulfillment in all of life's experiences. It may mend the broken heart, but it does not prevent the heart from being broken. It may restore the spiritually crushed. Psalm 34 and verse 18, but it does not crush the forces that may create that oppression. The psalm, if fully grasps, dispels the naivety of that faith which does not contain within it the strength to stand against the onslaught of evil. This is what Dr. Craigie is saying. Ultimately, our fear of the Lord should trump our fear of man. That's the fear of the Lord. At the end of the day, who do you fear more? Because the apostles are going to say we ought to obey God rather than man. And this is a great key to what it means to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord characterizes everything that the believer does. Fear of the Lord drives me to prayer. Fear of the Lord drives me to faith. Fear of the Lord drives me to obedience. Fear of the Lord drives me to withstand against evil in an evil day. This is what it means to fear the Lord. But only poor men can fear the Lord. Only poor men can truly fear the Lord. In closing, do you really view yourself as a spiritual pauper? In the Latin Vulgate, the, one of the great translations of Scripture of yesteryear, in Matthew chapter 5, it's blessed are the paupers. Blessed are the paupers. Do we view ourselves as poor in spirit? We live in a land and in a time in human history where we have an abundance all of our needs are met, it would seem. But yet, very often, the greatest need of the human soul is not being met, and that is communion with God. In order to be an effective witness, in order to be one of God's saints, we must view ourselves properly. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? That you bring nothing to the table in your relationship to God. 
Your hands and pockets are empty in your relationship to him, just like David was. David in 1 Samuel 21 is perhaps one of the greatest illustrations in all the Bible of what it means to be poor in spirit. Did you know that you can bring nothing to the table in your relationship with God? When God saves you, he doesn't save you because of what he can get out of you or what you bring to him. God saves you because he pities you. God saved me because he pitied me. Because when God looked at me, he seen me for what I was. Spiritually bankrupt, poor, in spirit, being able to offer God nothing. This is vital to our relationship with God. This is how you get into the kingdom. By being poor in spirit. After all, it's one of the first things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor people are the only ones who can claim the exceeding precious realities in the 34th Psalm. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that it is the poor in spirit that inherit the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus Christ's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.